Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our 400th show. And it's for the week of Schmerz Day, November 14th, 2022. On the show today, news, listener questions, and surveys. Then in our main segment, Jim starts a series about the time that the McDonald's restaurant chain proposed a new attraction for Disneyland. Let's get started by bringing in the man who points out that cats will walk down the stairs in front of you like they're your life insurance beneficiary. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? Do you know the whole phenomena of you get a delivery to the house that's in a cardboard box and immediately the cats are like, they don't care what's in the box. They want the box. The box, right, yeah. There are times when just navigating the path from the kitchen to the living room involves walking around no less than five different cardboard boxes that have been left on the floor because the cats are like, oh, new cat bed. I think the Marines have a less complicated obstacle course. Every so often when the cats aren't looking, I you know just sort of tear down one of the cardboard boxes and recycle it. And it's like... We're not hoarders. We have cats. There we go. The there we go. Thank you. We... I, in fact, I'm getting that t-shirt tonight. <laughs> Feel free to use the idea, Jim. No, steal it. Steal it. Okay. All right, Jim, let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers, Scott May, Susan Albert, PDX Girl Geek, and Jay Poe, and longtime subscribers, Ethan Kay. Jimmy at Gandhi Eye Care, R. Murphy, and Kelly with two L's and three E's. Jim, these are the Disney cast members who floated the idea of having Gonzo, Fozzie the Bear, and Pepe the King Prawn do voiceover guided rides at Kilimanjaro Safaris in Disney's Animal Kingdom. They point out that technically, all of these characters are animals themselves, and the only holdup is getting Pepe to say something other than grilling recipes for whatever animal he's passing. True story. <laughs> Have we definitively figured out what species Gonzo is at this point? I am not a cryptozoologist, Jim, so I don't know. There we go. Excellent answer. Moving on. All right. On to the news. Folks, the Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish podcast. For a worry-free travel experience every time, book online at storybookdestinations.com. Jim, as a reminder, you and I are doing the second annual Gingerbread Challenge in Walt Disney World starting Friday, December 2nd, 2022. And we're doing a live podcast recording to start that. Tickets are available at tinyurl.com slash gingerbread dish, all one word, all lowercase. And our topic, Jim, is March of the Wooden Soldiers, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. So we have a breakfast starting at 8 o'clock at the Contemporary Resort. Podcast starts at 8.30, and it's a glorious three-hour finale that should not take quite that long. Wonderful. Also, we've got events all throughout Friday and Saturday, mm -hmm. uh, so come on down if you're, uh, if you're around. Also, uh, Jim, I want to take a quick minute here to acknowledge the passing of Disney legend Alice Davis. Passed away last week. Alice was the costume designer responsible for the look of tons of Disney's best attractions, including It's a Small World and Pirates of the Caribbean, and was the one who established Disney's costume manufacturing and refurbishment processes. Uh, Alice was named a Disney legend in 2004 and has a window on Main Street USA in Disneyland. And you met Alice, right, Jim? I could go even a little further than that, Len. Uh, Alice Davis was actually my daughter's grandmother. My ex and I befriended Mark and Alice Davies in the early 90s, and they were very gracious, you know, when, when we were having Alice. There's no other way to say it. Alice was a great broad. I mean, she, she had... <laughs> that's the feeling I got. That's from the whole thing. <laughs> no, that's the thing. She could drink you under the table. She had the absolute greatest stories. In fact, you mentioned it's a small world, and it's like, it was always funny to watch the two of them, Mark and Alice, talk about small world because Mark designed 
all of the dolls for the animatronics for Small World. And Alice would then stop the conversation and said, no, you designed one doll. <laughs> right, exactly. It's the same doll 500 times, whereas the costumes are all individual. <laughs> well, no, that's it exactly. And it was so funny to watch the two of them talk about this attraction because Mark gets all the credit because, oh, look at all the cute little dolls you designed. It's like, no, it's my costumes. They were great, great people. And I miss them, though. On the other hand, my liver is finally beginning to recover. It's going <laughs> to just say, you beginning to heal, yes. Yeah. It was a hard lesson to learn in my, you know, my late 30s, early 40s. Don't drink with 70-year-olds. <laughs> They've been doing it for decades. And, you know, they, they mix highballs that you could barely walk out to the car, let alone drive home. Oh, gosh. Wow. That's fantastic. Yeah, she was a great woman. She was. She was. All right, Jim, another news. Uh, the Disney DVC membership has a new spot to watch Magic Kingdom fireworks starting this week. The Top of the World Lounge Villain's Lair has a new fireworks dessert party. So uh, you can get in uh, 90 minutes prior to the published firework time for the Magic Kingdom Park. Uh, it's called the Enchantment at the Top Dessert Party. It's $89 per adult plus tax and $49 per kid. A couple of interesting things here. Uh, one is when you book this, you get a reserved table inside the lounge on the day of the reservation plus a dessert buffet. And Jim, this is the thing that's surprising to me. An open mm -hmm. bar for guests age 21 and up. Do you know of any other open bar event in a bar in Walt Disney World? Wow. And also $89. Like that price is going to go up, right? If I'm remembering the drinks at the top of the world, that'll cover two of them, won't it? <laughs> I, honestly, God, I think, it, I think the, uh, the break even is somewhere between four and five. Okay. okay. And four or five drinks. So if you're getting get in 90 minutes early and the fireworks are mm -hmm. 30 minutes long, five drinks in two hours. I know a lot of Disney fans who could do that. Right. Especially if you're staying at the Contemporary okay. or Bay Lake. <laughs> wow. All and right. I would, I, I would suggest so. that, actually. Because I, I say this to people as they're, uh, if they're booking uh, the uh, wine pairings at Victorian Alberts. I'm like, just add another $1,000 onto that bill and get yourself a, a room at the Grand Floridian because you are not going to want to go anywhere <laughs> after that. So just factor this into the cost of your stay at the Contemporary, folks. Suddenly I'm back at the Davises. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I sense a theme, right? There we go. I got to say right. too, Jim, I, uh, I love how Disney is marketing this mm -hmm. venue because here's what they write. Even the ruthless relax, whether pursuing puppies or stealing souls, messing with a mermaid or belittling a beast, evil doing is exhausting. And since a dishonest day's work is frowned upon by mainstream masses, the deliciously devious decompress away from judging eyes, hiding deep underground or on top of the world. Swapping stories of sabotage and toasting with tales of terror, the unsavory unwind in places inaccessible to the innocent. Let me just say the alliteration here, Jim, is fantastic. Yeah. This is a brilliant piece of writing from Disney. I don't know who did it. Uh, really, really good uh, there. So I got a kick out of uh, doing the research for this particular uh, news item. Yeah, really, really good idea there. Also, Jim, we're recording this on uh, November uh, 10th. Jim, I point out this is the 23rd anniversary of the closing of one of Walt Disney World's original attractions, the Magic mm -hmm. Kingdom Skyway. These open-air gondola buckets transported guests between Fantasyland and Tomorrowland. It was cool enough that Disney advertised each as a one-way ride as its own attraction. And I mentioned this, Jim, for a couple of reasons. Number one, I love the gondolas. Number two, it is mm -hmm. um, one of the three things that I remember from my first ever trip to Walt Disney World with my grandparents, where my ancient Italian grandmother, Doris, 
would not let my sister or I look over the edge of the gondola gym for fear that we would plummet to our deaths. And, and any of you with a grandmother like that know exactly the the screaming that was involved. Like, oh, oh no, don't get close, too close to the edge. But this is the same woman, Jim, who not only took me on Pirates mm-hmm. of the Caribbean, which I've talked about, but also took mm-hmm. me on the uh, Astro Orbiter and screamed the entire time, Jim. But that was the thing she was willing to do for her grandkids. So, uh Aww. Fond place in my heart for the old uh, Magic Kingdom Sky. Also, Jim, not for nothing, but uh, kind of lives mm-hmm. on in the Skyliner. It does. It does. Isn't the Skyliner going to be shutting down for yeah, maintenance. rehab or yeah. maintenance yeah. in January? Uh, it comes in January, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. But still, it was a, it was mm-hmm. a great attraction. The folks over at uh, RetroWDW.com have some great photographs of it. If you have a vertigo or afraid of heights, probably not best to look at that. <laughs> But for those of you who also want to see what old Fantasyland looked like in all of its brown uh, alpine glory. Oof. Mm -hmm. Man, that was it. Also, Jim, uh, construction continues apace on the new Polynesian DVC Tower between the Polynesian and the Grand Floridian. If you're staying at the Poly in the near future, consider requesting something in Nui, Rarotonga, or Samoa if you've got a standard view room. Because, Jim, in the show notes here, I'm posting a photo of what it looks like in Aotearoa 2220. You see the photo there, Jim? Fascinating to get sort of that clear shot of that's the uh, Grand Floridian Villas in the distance, right? Right. And it, it looks like, Jim, the uh, from well, one of the scenes from Collie River Rapids where they, <laughs> where they do the deforestation. Because <laughs> all you see here are mounds of brown dirt uh, and you've got a single tree in the distance uh, by you. But it looks, I mean, the construction comes right up. To, to Aotearoa. So, uh, and this is a standard view room. Again, you're not expecting the best thing right there. Mm-hmm. But still, if you've got a standard view room, other three buildings um, are, are definitely going to be better. So Nui, Rarotonga, or Samoa. And Jim, um, because every Disney cloud has a magical mm-hmm. silver lining, those rooms are closer to the Great Ceremonial House and the mm-hmm. Transportation and Ticket Center and allow more direct face-on views of the Magic Kingdom's nightly fireworks show, Disney Enchantment, presented by Pandora, Jim which is truly a celebration of magic, imagination, joy, and hope for all who carry dreams in their hearts. Throughout your journey, favorite Disney characters like Rhea, Moana, and Joe Gardner from Seoul will join you as you explore a world of wonder filled with friendship, love, and fun. And if darkness tries to hold you back, Jim, you'll discover you only have to look within to find the power to believe and make your dreams come true. How much cough syrup have you had this morning, left? <laughs> You said I got to give credit to Disney's marketing. They're doing uh, actually doing some good work these days. That was kind of great. It was kind of okay. Great. Okay. So. Uh, speaking of hotel rooms, Jim, uh, I've been reading the comments uh, that unofficial guide touring plans users leave in their surveys about Disney hotels because we're going to start adding these comments um, to the mm-hmm. website. And the thing I find remarkable to this day mm-hmm. is how much people love the Skyliner, and it just begs the question: What is the economic reason for not? expanding the Skyliner. you have any idea? You and I are privy to a couple of different ideas that they have explored yeah. for expanding the Skyliner, both heading over to Disney Springs and likewise heading over toward Animal Kingdom Lodge. Right. So the, well, so the idea for Disney Springs would essentially make pop and art of animation its own hub mm-hmm. through which you would get to Disney Springs. Yeah. Those ideas are in place. And based on what you were just saying about the survey results about, you know, how the people who are staying at resorts that have the Skyliner just love the thing. Yeah. 
But again, we have a gentleman in charge these days who's kind of tapping the brakes. These are plans that people could turn the key on relatively quickly. I mean, of course, you'd have to contact the folks who actually make the Skyliner cars. Skyliner systems, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that, that yeah. sort of thing. But there's a plan, but you have to have somebody at the very top who has decided that this is worthwhile. This is something the company will pursue. And the fact that Mr. Chapek, you know, they had the equivalent of an executive gathering uh, at the resort at the tail end of October. Yeah. And to date, whatever, you know, they did walkthroughs of the park. They talked about the future of the place and the fact that no plans, you know, have been discussed or, or have emerged since then. It's just, this is something people love. This is something that adds value yeah. to hotels you already own. And it's like, why hasn't this moved forward? Yeah, my question is, is, is it just a matter of we, we're, we don't want to make that size of an investment in the parks right now? Or is it a case of the return on investment of that is not as great as these other projects that we're considering? And that's, that's, what, uh, that's what I'd love to hear. All right, on to surveys. Mm -hmm. A friend of our show and author of the unofficial guide to the Disney Cruise Line, Aaron Foster, was the first mm -hmm. to send in this survey question from Disney. And based on the number of similar emails we got and seeing them pop up on Twitter, I think Disney is sending out a lot more of these now. And Jim, this is mm -hmm. um, a question we've seen once before, but not mm -hmm. to this level of detail and certainly not with this frequency. Mm -hmm. So if you've visited a theme park recently, Disney's uh, survey will include questions about every attraction that you visited um, and asked you how it made you feel. And the options are these, and I believe there's uh, seven or eight of them. Uh, the first mm -hmm. thing is uh, it, it, it was boring. Uh, mm -hmm. It was uninteresting and it feels like a waste of time. So the one I'm reading from here is Space Mountain. The second mm -hmm. one was it's dated. It's not relevant or it's in need of refurbishment. Uh, the third is it's iconic. It's a classic the park would not be the same without this attraction. Mm -hmm. The fourth option is it's a personal favorite. My perfect day would definitely include this attraction. And by the way, these are checkboxes. You could include more than one. Uh, mm -hmm. The next is it's immersive. I'm able to quote, live the story or be absorbed in the environment. Uh, the last one is it's insensitive. It's perceived as disrespectful to some audiences. And the last two options are I'm not familiar with this attraction or it's none of these. In the, uh, so Space Mountain is the example we gave, but I've seen this on everything from like all the all the all the attractions to parades, fireworks, and even Let the Magic Begin, the opening show mm -hmm. for the Magic Kingdom. And I would find it difficult to believe that uh, anyone would say it would be uh, dated, iconic, or insensitive. Although I guess there are options for all of those. The other one that sort of jumps out at me is insensitive. I mean, I think boring is a personal choice, whereas those two I think would be the ones that. It would be interesting to watch how Disney is tallying those up at, at various parks, the effect of, not, again, let, let's remember, this is the modern Disney company we're talking about now, mm -hmm. just because they, they've tallied a list of attractions that, you know, people have said are dated or insensitive doesn't necessarily mean they're going to act on those attractions, but it would certainly, I think, be helpful right. to sort of like, okay, this, this is something that guests are telling us they need to refresh. On the other hand, what was it, 97, they ripped out Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. And right. what is the popcorn bucket that people are lusting after, you know, right Mr. now? Mr. Toad. But if, yeah. there we go. That's a great looking popcorn bucket, too. 
It is, it is. But we're putting a lot of money into popcorn buckets, you yeah. know, and, and but not so much the actual attractions. But well, I think one of the advantages of asking uh, this question is if they do a refurbishment, you know, if, if you refurb a classic attraction like I'm just throwing out a, a name here, Peter Pan, mm-hmm. which has that yep. you know the Native American scene in there that is not mm-hmm. great, right? Sometimes refurbishing and reopening a classic attraction is just as good as building a new attraction when it comes time to do advertising, right? If it's if it's extensive in us, yeah. But at the same time, think about just in the past year, we had Kim Irvine ride herd on Snow White's Scary Adventure become Snow White's Enchanted Wish. And they've done an amazing job of updating that classic dark ride right. with projection technology and that sort of thing. It's never looked better. And the and the advantage there too is uh, no, uh, no huge capital investment in building a new attraction, right? No, no, no. Absolutely. Yeah. But you just have to wonder... Is that going to move the needle if you're out in Southern California and staring down what it costs to go to Disneyland these days? And it's like, oh, they updated Snow White. Honey, get in the car. You know, it's like, I don't know about that, Len. Maybe not for one of them, but I think three or four. Well, there you go. Might, there go. It, might be, it might be the thing that, that pushes some people over the edge. And, you know, by the way, we've got this, right? So mm-hmm. especially if they're doing things like projection technology, which I think we all love, mm-hmm. uh, and people would would say, okay, this is something new and novel and something that I haven't seen in a theme park before. Let's make sure that we visit this when we go. So super interesting. Mm-hmm. The other uh, the other thing I, I, I found distinctive about the kinds of the, the questions, the categories in this is all but one of them, I think, are asking for your specific perspective. Like, do you think this is boring? Do you think mm-hmm. this is dated? Do you think this is iconic? Obviously, your know, personal favorite is, a, is something about you. But when it comes to the question about insensitivity, I think mm-hmm. you're asking people there to not only look at it from from their eyes, but from the perspective mm-hmm. of others. True. Yeah. True. So good good question there. I thought that was that was really good. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right, Jim. Let's move on to uh, listener questions. Uh, here's mm-hmm. one from Adrian. It's actually kind of funny. Uh, mm-hmm. Who says uh, I had a long drive on Monday, and as one typically does with the three hours to kill, I listened to my favorite podcasts, including mm-hmm. episode 399 of the Disney Dish at the 17 minute mark. Len begins to discuss a survey that Leandro sent in and read off the answers to the first question. As Len said, I seriously considered spending more days. The podcast stopped. The car speakers went silent and my phone connected to my car via Apple's CarPlay. Siri engaged on my car's display to listen for further instructions. I thought I'd maybe press something accidentally on the steering wheel. So I reround 15 seconds and Len tried listening again. Upon those words, I seriously considered spending more days. Uh, saying it again, the podcast stopped and Siri turned on again. One can only imagine the magical activations once Disney gets those Alexa devices installed in the resort rooms. Until then, oh. keep living in the future, man. Yeah. <laughs> so I laughed because this happened to me when I was playing the podcast as well. And Laurel has our Siri programmed to have a uh, an Indian male accent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was like, so when when that happened, I was like, what? What just happened here? Like what, what? What's going on? Like I, you know, I was playing the podcast on my on my iPhone, you know, out loud because Laurel is at school. I was like, "Why is Siri keep going on here?" And I, you know, so I, I had to stop the podcast, rewind ten seconds to mm-hmm. once, and I did it again, and the exact same thing happened to me, which I thought was very funny. She sees you when you're sleeping. She knows <laughs> when you're awake. It reminded me so. of the uh, the XKCD comic where uh, Randall says he walks into people's homes, and the first thing he says is, "Alexa, order one thousand avocados. Confirm." <laughs> wow! 
Kind of great, kind of great. All right, uh, one more uh, listener email from Peter. He says, I was playing around with some numbers and decided to estimate how each Disney attraction might affect capacity in the Magic Kingdom. I came up with the following chart, very roughly estimating how many square feet are required per guest per hour sorted by attraction. And uh, Peter posted the results uh, uh, on Twitter as well. Um, so, Jim, the chart is shown in the show notes there. The interesting thing is if you look at it, the Tomorrowland Speedway requires the most square feet per guest per hour at 313. So, uh, and then followed by Tron, Big Thunder, uh, Mountain Railroad, and Jungle Cruise, and Shannon Tales with Bell, and so on. And so Peter had two questions. One, uh, he says, aside from being an open day, opening day attraction in the Magic Kingdom, why wouldn't it be valuable to reinvest in the land where Tomorrowland Speedway is located? Pretty much any new attraction here would increase capacity more than what's currently there, and also it's a great location. And actually, I have the same thing, Jim, but not for the Speedway, but for Jungle Cruise, which is fourth on Peter's list. And I've long maintained that uh, the Jungle Cruise in Disneyland is iconic and should live there, but is a huge underutilized space in the Magic Kingdom in Adventureland in Florida. And it should be replaced with something else. If you poke at early concept art for Hong Kong Disneyland, Mm -hmm. remember that the Jungle Cruise eventually got transformed into basically their Rivers of America. Right. Tom Sawyer's Island ended up being Tarzan Island with the treehouse there. But there was an early, early iteration that had a Jungle Cruise-like experience, only you were in Jeeps and you were driving through a jungle filled with dinosaurs who were constantly trying to eat you. So it was, it was it, kind it, of an it interesting thing. The Jungle Cruise meets a dinosaur. Yes, that, that, that's Meets exactly. Indiana Jones, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and for a time that idea was floated because when you you look at Jungle Cruise, there's just no getting around the fact that it's a slow to load, slow to unload. As you mentioned, it eats up a lot of real estate. It's a, it's a heavy maintenance attraction with yeah. so many animatronics and likewise. It's water-based. You got boats. Yeah, which you you have to maintain because the water over time will you know, eat away at the exterior of the boat and yep. that sort of thing. It's a lot. Uh, coupled with a horticultural component. But I, I think you're right. For a Disneyland where it all started, it makes the most sense. But it, it is also very telling when you look at the future, the, the later castle parks, mm-hmm. how that kind of fell off the table. But yet you got things like the storyboat attraction for Shanghai Disneyland, where you, you float by vignettes from Fantasyland and then go into the magic cave under the castle. I mean, they feel like they need to give guests a boat experience. It's just, you know, they're, they're trying to do it. But it doesn't have to, to be it. that big, yeah. Yeah, well, there we go. The thing that I found interesting about Peter's question was that Tron is the um, uh, number two on the list. It takes up the most square feet per guest per hour. But as I was thinking about Peter's question about what to do with the Tomorrowland Speedway, I had I had this question. Do you think, Jim, that the positioning, the elevation, and the view you get of Tron in the Magic Kingdom is predicated on the Tomorrowland Speedway always being there? Like if you put it if you replace the Tomorrowland Speedway with a building, would Tron still look the same? Ooh. Right? Because remember, when we were talking about why the harmonious barges Mm -hmm. are off-center relative to Mm -hmm. the center line of Epcot, one idea 
was mm-hmm. that well eventually the the play pavilion is gonna or not the play pavilion sorry the festival pavilion will grow mm-hmm. three stories uh, and it'll be slightly off center in future world but if you're standing at the top of that the mm-hmm. uh, because it's off center the way that you look at harmonious from there will actually be on center for paying guests at the festival center and I'm thinking like that was some long term thinking there but did they do the same thing at Tron? thinking that uh, that the Tomorrowland Speedway would always be there, or did it take into account that it may not be there going forward? And that's an interesting question. Next time I'm in uh, Magic Kingdom, I'm going to look at that and say, what if yeah. we put a 40-foot-tall building here? <laughs> would this, would this yeah. still look the same, or would we only see the top canopy? I'm going to love to hear what you find when you, you go back into the park and walk around there. So I have, a, I have two options here. You can either dig down and remove the utilidor, or I'm just saying, Jim, attraction on stilts. <laughs> All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim has a new story for us on the time McDonald's proposed a new attraction for Disneyland. We'll be right back. If you're spending time with your loved ones this holiday season, chances are you're going to hear a lot of stories. And not just the stories you want to hear, the ones you love to hear, but also the ones, to be frank, you've already heard way too many times before. I mean, my dad used to tell this one about when he was growing up in Dorchester, Mass, back in the 30s, he was a member of this Irish bike gang. And every time he'd tell this story, I'd say, Dad, you were 10. Nobody thought you and your friends were tough just because you put baseball cards in the spokes of your bike. Mind you, we recently lost my dad. I mean, it'll be two years ago next month, but it still feels like it happened yesterday. And these days, man, I'd happily have let Dad drone on and on about the Shamrocks. That was the name of his Irish bike gang, by the way. Really original name. Again, let him drone on and on. If only I could get a little more time with the guy. Because that's the thing, folks. You never really know when the last time you're going to talk with somebody really is going to be that last time. That's why I'm so grateful that a few years back, we signed Dad up for StoryWorth. What's great about StoryWorth is every week they'll email your loved one a single life-related question that you pick from their collection. Things like, what was the bravest thing you've ever done or what's the farthest you've traveled? Your loved one then responds with a story that keys off of that question. And and then after a year, StoryWorth compiles your loved one's stories, memories, and even any photos into a handsome hardcover book, thereby creating this valued family keepsake, which Trust me on this, we'll be out on the coffee table for friends and family to see when they drop by for a visit uh, this holiday season. And what's truly great about StoryWorth is they make the process so simple. Oh, if you're wondering what the bravest thing my dad ever did was, well, it involves a naval demolition team, a fouled anchor chain, and a hurricane that's bearing down on this transport ship, which is full of Marines. This story is so much better than anything my dad ever shared about his days in the Shamrocks. Anyway, help your family share their story this holiday season with StoryWorth. Go to storyworth.com slash Disney Dish today and save $10 on your first purchase. That's S-T-O-R-Y-W-O-R-T-H dot com slash Disney Dish to save $10 on your first purchase. Again, storyworth.com slash Disney Dish. We thank them for sponsoring today's show. Okay, so if you keep on saying you need to make a budget, but never do it, or if you somehow keep missing credit card payments, or worse, you're afraid to look at your bank statement, 
then maybe it's time you take back control of your financial life. Meet Rocket Money, formerly Truebill, our favorite financial app. So why did Truebill change its name to Rocket Money? We'll tell you what we've heard. Truebill, now backed by Rocket Companies, has grown from a bill management app into a full-on personal finance empowerment tool that helps over 3.4 million people with budgeting, lowering bills, canceling subscriptions, and more, saving each of their members, on average, $700 a year. And with all that growth comes the next evolution in Truebill's story, a new name. Bottom line, Rocket Money is everything I've loved about Truebill but with a fresh new look and feel. So start canceling your unused subscriptions and save money at rocketmoney.com slash DisneyDish. Again, that's rocketmoney.com slash DisneyDish. Or download the app from the Apple App Store or the Google Play Store. I was super excited when you mentioned this topic because Mm -hmm. in doing some research, I realized that McDonald's has been in the Walt Disney World parks, at least for a decade, right? We had uh, Frontierland Fries in the Magic Kingdom, also known as the Westward Ho Fry Cart, which is where Golden Oak Outpost is now in Frontierland. And that used to serve both fries and chicken nuggets. And interestingly, although it only served those two things and was not an actual McDonald's, it was rated about the same as Pecos Bills and better than most of the counter service restaurants in the Magic Kingdom. I think this was, what, 97 to 2007? Yeah, it, it was definitely interesting to have McDonald's move as aggressively into the parks as they did in the late 90s. But again, it was part of that amazing 10-year deal. Yeah. And they had, um, not only in in the Magic Kingdom, but Fairfax Fries in the studios, yeah. Sir McDonald's mm-hmm. Fries, um, Refreshment mm-hmm. Port in World Showcase. Mm-hmm. I think you could get chicken nuggets there too, right? Yeah. And let's not also forget that finally when California Adventure opened up, we had a burger invasion uh, as part of uh, Paradise Pier where you could actually get Big Macs inside of a Disney park. That's amazing. Yeah. And Restaurantosaurus in the Animal Kingdom supposedly served McDonald's items that you couldn't get in regular McDonald's. And I don't remember that, but uh, a quick search of uh, the interwebs says that that's true. And that's kind of amazing as well. But Jim, this time between 1997 and 2007 was not the first time. The McDonald's and Disney talked about theme park partnerships, right? No, no. I want to start off by crediting Len. He's the one who actually went over to Disney Docs, which, by the way, wonderful site maintained by Ted Linhart. Well worth dropping by and poking around the collection of, of documents Ted has there. But you unearthed this fascinating packet that Stefan Zudik, who was the regional vice president of the San Diego region of the McDonald's Corporation, sent to Disneyland executives, and this was December of 87. And it proposes kind of a wild idea. Now, Len, I want to remind you, again, today's our 400th episode, but if you go back to episode 271, you and I talk about Blast to the Past, which was this seasonal event that was staged at the Disney parks starting in mid-March of of 1988 and then ending May of that, that same year. And this is when the happiest place on earth was celebrated in the 1950s. So you had classic cars with big fins. I remember this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Cast members dressed in leather jackets or poodle skirts. Not at the same time, of course. And, you know, music blasting in in this part of the park. You got to rock around the clock in Blueberry Hill. Blast to the past, hugely successful seasonal uh, promotion, so much so that Disneyland brings it back the very next year, late winter, early spring of 89. And because it did a great job of convincing people 
in the surrounding area of Southern California that you had to make a special trip to Disneyland to, to get in on this celebration of the 50s. And, but again, it was limited time fun. Blast to the Past was only presented at Disneyland for six weeks, and then all those wonderful 50s decorations were taken down or soared backstage. Getting back to Stefan Zudnik's uh, letter to Disney executives. Dated December 12th, 1987. So it's basically three months prior to the very first blast of the past at the parks, which would get underway March 19th, 1988. Okay. At that time, Zudnik represents 430 McDonald's franchises in that part of California land. And he'd clearly heard about the plans for blast of the past and Stefan wanted in. So this is what he proposed. Given that the McDonald's franchise had gotten to start in Southern California in the 1950s and had almost been a part of Disneyland right from the beginning. I guess we need to, to, to stop for a sec to explain that part of the story. In this packet that Ted has up at Disney Docks, you can see two letters from 1954. One of them is from Ray Kroc, uh, the, the gentleman who took McDonald's from a local chain in California and turned it into the world's most profitable restaurant. Mm. But he's writing to Walt Disney. And there are some very weird parallels between Walt Disney and Ray Kroc's lives. I mean, they were both from Illinois. Disney was born in 1901. Ray was born in 1902. And when they were teenage boys, both of them lied about their ages so they could then enlist in the Red Cross Ambulance Service during World War I. Disney and Croc end up assigned to the very same unit. Oh, wow. Ambulance, Ambulance Company A, which actually ships out to France after the armistice is signed in 1918. While they're overseas, these two boys from the Midwest strike up not a friendship per se, but an acquaintanceship. Ray knew young Walt well enough to describe the, the future movie mogul in his, his bio, which from 1977, Len, here, here's a page turner, grinding it out, the making of McDonald's. <laughs> so, not not so, what I would have called it, but okay, okay. But he goes on to say that Disney was regarded as kind of an odd duck because when we had time off and went into town to chase girls, Walt stayed in camp and drew pictures. So anyway, wow. uh, Walt and Ray returned to the U.S. after the war. They both abandoned the Midwest, head to Southern California to seek fame and fortune. So it's now 1954. And Croc is working with Richard and Mac McDonald, two brothers who were having tremendous success with their San Bernardino restaurant thanks to its speedy service system. And uh, Ray thinks his food system has huge potential, which is why he's already set up satellite McDonald's operations in La Hambra and over in Downey. Okay. We are back at a time when the entire McDonald's fast food chain is just three restaurants total. Wow. And it's April of 54, and Walt Disney has just unveiled his plans for Disneyland. And so as soon as Ray hears what his old war buddy is up to, Croc saw an opportunity. So he, he October of 54, he sends the following letter to Walt Disney, which reads in part, 
Uh, Walt, I feel somewhat presumptuous addressing you in this way, but I am sure you would not want me to address you any other way. My name is Ray A. Kroc. I, I look over the Company A picture we had taken at Sound Beach, Connecticut many times and recall a lot of pleasant memories. So it's like, okay, so he, now that he's finished buttering up his old war buddy, Kroc, the salesman, you know, moves in for the kill. And it's like, I have very recently taken over the national franchise of the McDonald's system. And I would like to inquire if there may be an opportunity for McDonald's in your Disneyland development. What Ray was proposing here is like they had, McDonald's had its speedy service system. And Ray basically knew that with the tens of thousands of people who were going to flock to Disneyland, Walt was going to need a restaurant that could feed crowds of that size quickly. Okay. And Ray was like, the speedy service system is going to be up to that task, you know, and we can turn out hundreds of fresh burgers every hour, which could be sold at an affordable price. Right. And Walt responds cordially to, to Ray and then says he'll be handing, handing the proposal over to the Disneyland executive who's in charge of concessions. Yeah. And, I mean, to be fair, Disney doesn't know anything about running restaurants at this point. Well, and, and that's actually a very important point in this story, Glenn, because... When Disney made the deal with ABC for the money to make Disneyland, one of the things that ABC got was the right to concessions. Very early on, if you look at documents for Disneyland Park, you will see the name ABC Paramount come up a lot associated with individual restaurants around the park. And that's because they were in charge of the burgers and the fries and the Cokes and, and that sort of thing. Okay, but did, a did ABC have experience running restaurants? On the East Coast, the ABC Paramount ran concessions at big stadiums, theaters, you know, that sort of thing. It was, it was a company that they had absorbed at some point during a merger in the 40s and the 50s. So that's when this deal came to ABC with the notion of, you know, in exchange for doing these three television series for the ABC Broadcasting Network, we'll give you the money for Disneyland, but we'll, you know, we'll effectively own a third of the park. And one of the things we'll get with our third ownership is the right to run the concessions at Disneyland. <laughs> it's kind of counterintuitive, but they controlled the fast food operations at Disneyland Park basically from 1954 all the way up to June of 1960, which is when the Disney company finally bought them out for $7.5 million. So Ray goes down to Disneyland and has a meeting with the gentleman who's in charge of concessions at the park. And Ray, to his dying day, told this story about how they were very excited about the idea of bringing the speedy service system to Disneyland. In fact, they were going to build this fast food restaurant in Tomorrowland, which, remember, came together very quickly between January and July of 1955. But where things broke down was that these executive at Disneyland, who, again, wasn't tied to Walt Disney Productions, the studio, that sort of thing, but had ties to ABC Paramount, he insisted that a bag of fries that would be sold inside of Disneyland mm. rather than the price that they were paying out at, say, at the restaurant in San Bernardino or La Hambra or Downey uh, would go for 10 cents. They were insisting, okay, inside the park, you're going to charge 15 because that nickel is going to go straight to us. And Ray evidently felt this was price gouging and, you know, made a very big show of, well, if, if that's the way you're going to be, I don't want to be here in Disneyland and walks away. Wow. 
See, that's the story that Ray told to executives at McDonald's. And in fact, that, that's getting back to Stephen Zudnick. He, he had worked at the company long enough to have heard this story. And so, again, we, we jump ahead now. Again, we were talking December of 87. And Stephen has heard about this blast to the past thing that Disneyland's about to do in the late winter, early spring of 1988. And so he sees this actually as an opportunity to right a long existing wrong. And so he writes to Disneyland executives, you know, and suggests that the two, these two giant corporations pool their resources when it comes to public relations and marketing, that, and that for the 60-day run of Disneyland's The Future is Back celebration, a replica of the original McDonald's be built and operate inside of Disneyland. Now, Ooh. Zudnick, he gets the name of the seasonal celebration wrong. It's blast to the past, even, not the future is back. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, there was a movie of that name you know, running around go. in the 80s. That's there we go. And he also gets the run of the show long. It's, it's six weeks, not 60 days. But Math is he was... He was, well, there we go. But he was really quite serious about building a full-time McDonald's inside of Disneyland Park that would look just like the restaurants used to when this fast food chain operated in the 1950s. And, you know, in fact, what's great about this packet line is they, they include a, a representation, you know, and it's it's mm -hmm. the old white tile building with yep. the, the golden arches holding up the structure. And But here's the thing. It would only operate inside the park for the run of blast of the past and then get pulled down. So for uh, for sixty days, yeah. But but here's the thing. I mean, six weeks. Uh, on Sorry. the face, <laughs> yeah, I made the same mistake. Six weeks. Okay. Six weeks. I, I know where you're going with this, but McDonald's does it all the time. It Go does. Ahead. Go ahead. It does. In fact, good friend Angela Ragno mm -hmm. works in event planning, and she always talks about how when McDonald's come, comes to Orlando, yeah. there we go. They will, and, they and, will build full-sized mm -hmm. replica restaurants inside the Orange County Convention Center to show people where they're going. It's not just one restaurant. They will build three. Oh, you really? Know, it, three full-size yeah. restaurants inside a convention center. And it's just for the convention for like, what, a week? Yeah, and that's it exactly. So they will buy out the Orange County Convention Center for three weeks because, yep. again, it'll take a full week to set up the restaurant. Yeah. And then it takes a full week to tear it down with security surrounding each yeah. of these restaurants because, again, McDonald's is always concerned about its rivals in the fast food field. Yeah. And this is a massive convention, one of the biggest conventions in Orlando, easily 100,000 people, probably more. So they had experience of putting up – we're talking about not a pretend restaurant. I mean, mm -hmm. it's got fully operating grills. It's It's got the fries for the fries. For all we uh, know, you know, Jim, there's a drive-thru. <laughs> <laughs> there could well be. We don't know. We've never seen one. Yeah. Yeah. But I've, I've heard stories about this from people who work at the convention center. And they're like, oh, no, you got to. You got to see this. It's like a miniature town. Absolutely. Yeah. And so it, it was one of these things with like, we can do this. We can come into Disneyland. We can build this restaurant. It will be there only for blast to the past. And then, you know, we'll tear it down and it will be, a, you know, a wonderful promotion. Disney was very polite about this. I guess there was some understanding within the company to the effect of, yeah, Ray Kroc took it kind of hard that he didn't get into Disneyland. And yes, this didn't necessarily fit the company's plans for this seasonal celebration. Now, mind you, Disney came back and said, look, we don't necessarily want to do build a McDonald's inside of, of Disneyland at this time. 
But we'd be perfectly happy to have your 430 uh, McDonald's restaurants around Southern California selling tickets to Blast of the Past. In fact, you you can go to eBay right now and pick up the special tickets that were created for this event. But as you mentioned, that McDonald's and Disney eventually did come to an understanding and we did get McDonald's of kind of limited McDonald's. I mean, again, the Westward Ho fry cart just sold the fries. And likewise, there were places that only sold the McNuggets or we were talking about Burger Invasion, which would sell the Big Macs. But think about like on Sunset Boulevard. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. McDonald's didn't start until the 50s. But imagine if on Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood Studios, mm-hmm. McDonald's executives were allowed to blue sky what a 1930s or 1940s era McDonald's um, looked like. Like I could see that being popular, you know? Absolutely. And weren't we just talking about Fairfax Fries? Was yeah, that Fairfax like Fries, right? Yeah. 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 Could have worked. All of this stuff happened in 1987-88. And then we had the deal that Disney signed with McDonald's in 1996. 10-year deal and, you know, again, has McDonald's sponsoring attractions in the park and exchanging having its food sold in the parks. But this also comes with McDonald's promoting no less than 10 films or Disney-produced TV shows Mm -hmm. at its restaurants nationwide during this time. And that 10-year deal only came about after McDonald's and Disney had had a very public falling out over, of all things, Dick Tracy, that uh, warning. Warren Beatty movie that the mouse released to theaters in June of 1990, which was supposed to be the next Batman, but underperformed at the box office. And <laughs> it's a play uh, way of saying bombed. Well, <laughs> you're more genteel than I, Jim. We're trying to be more positive on this podcast. So, you know, underperformed, you know, bombed is such an ugly word. It provided a steady source of income for Warren Beatty and Madonna and gave, us a, gave us a soundtrack we that we all remember to this day. Even better. Okay, but we'll get to that story and how we got the Westward Ho fry cart on the next installment of the series, which we'll pick up in next week's show. All right. Is it is it just me or are you also hungry right now for some fries? <laughs> <sighs> you mentioned that. I, you know, it's lunchtime, Jim. I'm just saying. <laughs> my problem is that you know, in order to leave the house, I got to walk around all the cardboard boxes full of cats. So. Nice, nice callback. Nice callback. There we go. <laughs> All right, folks, that's going to do it for the show today. You can help support our show and at Gmail Media by subscribing over at DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com, where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes, including our recently wrapped up series on Cars Land at Disney California Adventure. You can find more of Jim at GmailMedia.com and more of me, Len, at StringPlans.com. We are produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who'll be covering the Always song Belinda Says with the Beths, including Sidney Gish and Hans Puckett, live on stage at the Sinclair on Monday, February 23rd, 2023, in beautiful downtown Cambridge, Massachusetts. While Aaron's doing that, please go into iTunes and rate our show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. And for each week in November, we'll be giving away a free Disney Dish t-shirt to one lucky iTunes reviewer drawn at random. Do me a favor, please, and send me a copy of that review so I have your email address on ituringplans.com. Congratulations to this week's winner, Dan Monville, who wrote, The show has it all when it comes to Disney news, surveys, laughter, the inside story, accurate predictions, history, and the two best hosts anyone could ask for. I always look forward to each show as a bright spot for my drive time. Thank you for that, Dan. I appreciate it. And for Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show.